Good morning. Welcome to Jays Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. The Jays did what we asked yesterday. No stress, no uncertainty, no need to talk about the 26 man being pinch ran in the right spot or a lack of execution in the bottom of the ninth. Jays win 7 nothing. They put a couple on in the first. They put a couple on in the fourth. They keep chipping away, adding on from there. They did the job. That is what a lot more games should have looked like for this team so far this season. 7-0 victory to earn a 2-1 series victory against the Nationals. They now head into a series of nine games against irredeemably bad baseball teams, all in last place. They are about to play Colorado, Oakland, and Kansas City. Those three teams in their last 20 games, and I'm excluding the games they've played against each other because obviously if those teams play each other, they someone has to win. Four and 16, four and 16, seven and 13. On the season, those three teams, if you exclude their games against each other, where again, someone has to win, they have a 310 winning percentage. Yes, Colorado, it's Coors Field. It's, uh, that's one of the can't predict ball-ist ballparks in all of baseball. These are road games. It's traveling time zones, things like that. You got to take advantage of these next nine games. And urgency maybe isn't the word because we've heard it too much. And, you know, what does urgency look like against the series of bad teams versus, hey, when you come out of this run against these bad teams, you're facing Texas for four games at home. That'll be urgent because those will be the four games that over this last month determine uh, your playoff fate more than any other. But you can have yourself in a much stronger position where, hey, maybe you're entering that Texas series in a playoff spot or where at least in a situation where if you take three or four, you're back in a playoff spot and own the tiebreaker and things like that. If you go five and four or six and three over these next nine against, you know, and six and three is a, a good stretch against any uh, in any nine game set. That means you won every series potentially. Uh, that feels like it might not be enough given how tight this wild card race is looking given some of the schedule these other teams are facing the next little bit. And uh, yeah, considering that you have six games against the Rays down the stretch who are still fighting for the American League East title. Got to do it now. Got to have more games that look like yesterday's. Today is also a bizarro day around baseball because of all those guys who got placed on waivers earlier in the week. Uh, today is the last day for players to be added to 40-man rosters to be playoff eligible. You don't have to be on the major league roster, but you got to be on the 40 man or the 60 day IL at the end of today to be eligible for the postseason. There are some other scenarios where if you're in the organization and someone gets hurt in the playoffs, et cetera, et cetera. But for the most part, you got to be on that 40 man today. So we'll see a lot of roster turnaround baseball. There are also six to 10 interesting names on waivers right now. And of the 17 teams who are within five games of a playoff spot, still uh, some of those are going to put in claims on those guys. It's a, it's a fun game theory thing to play out because you're not only trying to make your team better, you're trying to prevent other teams from making themselves better. Uh, the waiver process kind of requires, maybe you put a claim in on a couple guys, but you could end up needing to clear a couple 40 man spots to do so. It's a, uh, it's going to be a really fascinating day, uh, a fascinating news dump, probably around five o'clock when all that stuff starts trickling out. Chris Black of Sportsnet at Down to Black on Twitter is going to help us sort through some of those names, see if anyone could help the Blue Jays, see if anyone could potentially help one of the teams the Blue Jays are competing against here. I don't know, a couple of relievers on that waiver market and the Texas Rangers have uh, 
very bad bullpen. And, you know, I, I, there, there might not be a pitcher I enjoy watching meltdown more than Araldis Chapman, which he did in the 10th inning last night. Uh, but that Rangers team figures to put a claim in on some of these guys. We'll, we'll get to that in a couple minutes here. But off the top here, Chris Black, at Down to Black, producer at Sportsnet. Uh, man, I know we like strikeouts, we like swing and miss, but how much does the baseball nerd in you appreciate the start like Chris Bassett had yesterday? Hey, here's eight efficient innings, pitching weirdly to soft contact. I don't need a lot of swing and miss. I'm just going to kind of mow down this lesser lineup. Yeah, he's, I mean, we've talked about it before. He's as smart as it gets. Um, there was an at-bat, I don't remember exactly. I feel like it was the nine-hitter, but he had thrown a few fastballs or sinkers he had missed a spot he was frustrated when he missed a spot or two he got to two strikes and kirk gave him a couple options and the disdain at which he was <laughs> shaking his head like not like super like not like angry but like he was like no 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 and then he threw another fastball like he was challenging guys he was saying beat me i don't think you can beat me over the course of six seven eight innings and yeah like you said he knew it was a lesser lineup and that's kind of Bassett will struggle against really good hitters. His stuff isn't super overpowering, but yeah, against lineups like that, he can really kind of, you know, use his IQ and use uh, all his weapons to get guys out. It's funny. He, he very much seems like the type of pitcher who, even though the Blue Jays have high talent hitters, he is exactly the type of pitcher that has given the Blue Jays fits this year at times. And, you know, he would fit very well in the Baltimore Orioles staff is what I'm trying to say. Um, I, I don't want to go uh, too deep on this, but, but I am curious. Arden and I talked a little bit earlier in the week, Chris, about whether part of why the Jays struggle with that kind of guy. And we saw it a little bit earlier in this series and certainly in the Cleveland series as well, is that this is a team that has high end hitting talent, which means if you are Hunter green or, or, you know, uh, Grayson Rodriguez, and you are challenging these guys with very good fastballs and sliders, but that's pretty much all you got. And you, you know, they're trying to locate it in one or two spots. That is an easier fit for this team than more of the junk ballers who make you think about 12 different pitch and zone combinations. Do you think there's anything to that theory? Yeah, I, I, I do think there is. I actually think there is something to, especially good young hitters who've grown up hitting high velo machines, who've grown up, who can, you know, dial up the machine to give you a nasty slider, see 50 of them, swing at 50 of them in the cage right before you go up to the plate, knowing you're going to see that hard slider from a hunter green. Yeah, I do think there's a difference in terms of when you're going up. You might see someone, you might not see, you know, the same sequence to start an at-bat in any of your two or three at-bats that you that you face that guy. So, yeah, I do think there is something to that, that kind of old-school pitchers can kind of flummox young hitters still. And to be honest, as you said, it's kind of it's kind of fun to watch sometimes. Yeah, so Chris Bassett, just to, to tie the bow on that one, again, if you if he were Kyle Gibson or, or Dean Kramer or something like that, he would have shut down uh, the Blues. He threw eight different pitches last night, threw all of them at least three times, did not allow a single piece of hard contact, 90. 9.3 was the highest exit velocity uh, he allowed. He only had six swing and miss, but was still able to uh, to give them eight innings. It was very, very fun. It was a nice kind of palate cleanser after the game that was on Tuesday. And Chris, before we turn the page entirely on that Tuesday game, uh, we hadn't talked to you. I did want to get your take on the, you know, obviously that the headline item from that game should be that they had the bases loaded and nobody out with their two, three, four hitters up and did not get a hit. But 
that game could have potentially been tied had they pinch run for Alejandro Kirk with Mason McCoy. Um, and, and that inning played out differently. We heard from John Schneider afterwards. We heard from Mike Petriello on Blue Jays Central yesterday breaking down the numbers uh, of, hey, would a pinch runner have scored? Uh, with the benefit of kind of 36 hours here, how do you feel about that decision and kind of the discussion that's come out of it? Um, to be honest, I thought the discussion was pretty intelligent for the most part that I, that I heard and read. Maybe that's just me cherry picking who I listened to. Um, but yeah, like probably should have pinch ran, especially when you compare it to similar situations in the recent past, like the logic didn't fully add up. And I thought Petriello, as you mentioned, did a perfect job explaining some of the numbers and analytics behind Kirk versus, you know, runner X or runner Y. But I actually thought I can't remember if it was post-game or if it was in the pre-game to um, the series-ending game. But I thought Ben Nicholson-Smith kind of put the best context on it in that the Jays like have put themselves in a situation where now every play is going to be magnified. You know, if they were comfortably in a playoff spot right now, if they were five games better, six games better, John Schneider is still getting asked about that play like post-game, but he's not getting asked about that play 24 hours later <laughs> during the, you know, before the next game, right? And I think like that's that's the position this team has put themselves in where every play, every decision is magnified because they're essentially in playoff games for the next month. And that's just kind of the nature of where they currently sit in the, in the postseason picture. And if, yeah, you didn't want to be in that spot, you could have hit earlier in that game you could have hit with your two three four hitters up and the base is loaded and nobody out in the bottom of the ninth you could have been five games better in the standings and this is you know i, I call it kind of a, a matryoshka russian doll the other day where it's like yeah there is this micro issue and then if you zoom up to the next size up there is, that is representative of a bigger issue in that whole game and then you size up and it's uh representative of a similar issue at the kind of season level or month level and it's a lot about missed opportunities uh we'll see if the blue jays can take advantage of the opportunity ahead of them which is nine games against very bad baseball teams who are playing very bad baseball right now and then four against the team that is in your crosshairs as you chase them uh, in yesterday's win chris there was a lot of as much as tuesday's talk was it's look, it's not Alejandro Kirk's fault that he's the guy who we were talking about pinch running and he got the send there and got thrown out. Um, it is at least a little his fault that he is, you know, 591st out of 596 base runners in base running value this year. We saw last night, even there were two times where a better runner would have scored uh, taking an extra base. Kirk eventually scored on those plays anyway. So no big deal because the Jays uh, did a good job hitting. Uh, however, uh, there is a, it's very, very clear at this point that Alejandro Kirk should be pinch run for whenever there's a borderline situation. He is, I, I mentioned it, 591st out of 596 in base running value, 534 out of 541 in qualified hitters for sprint speed. Uh, it's a lot. However, Chris, he had three hits and a sack fly yesterday. Looked pretty good. Uh, what are you seeing from Alejandro Kirk right now? Uh, you know, is this one good game? Are we moving in the, the right direction a little bit here? How are you feeling about Alejandro Kirk at the plate? I find Alejandro, we, you know, you and I haven't spoken about Kirk a ton in the two years that we've been doing this, but I actually find just focusing on him, looking into his value, the value that he brings to the team, fascinating. Like I put him just below the, the Vladdy bow in terms of who I like focusing in on and kind of seeing what's going on. Like short-term good news, four extra base hits over his last three games. 
that ties a career high for a short micro three-game span. Medium-term bad news, one ex- one extra base hit in the previous 16 games. So, like, the power's kind of disappeared. 340 like, slugging on the air. Yeah, like, you know, he came to camp late, and it's been, like, his season's been frustrating uh, on a few levels. But, like, he's got a higher baseline than most players because the patience and the swing decisions, whatever you want to call it, that, like, is kind of slump-proof. That'll always kind of be there. And we know the base running will always be an issue, um, but the defense is really good. And we know a few things, like statistically speaking, are true. His value defensively is greater than the subtraction on the base pass. Like if you literally, if we talk to our friends at Baseball Savant, they'll tell us that this year his defense in terms of framing, blocking, all that is worth about six runs. His base running takes away about three runs. Now, these numbers aren't perfect. Does it take into account every base running play, every infield single that doesn't happen because of his speed? Does it take into account how he might slow up other runners? I don't know the answers to those kind of micro details of those questions, but I do know that over the last two years, he's been worth about five wins, and that's including base running. And that's more than Danny Jansen. That's more than Guerrero. That's more than Whit Merrifield. He's a top 10 catcher. And like, if this is the absolute bottom, like this has been a bad season for him. There's no need, you know, you don't need to say anything else about it. He's been worth, you know, one win. It's slightly more than a uh, replacement level. But if this is the floor, like if the defense and the framing and the plate discipline give him a baseline of, at this level, you know, if he has a good offseason and comes into 2024 kind of ready to play, I think his ceiling is quite high. So I it's been a frustrating year watching him, but I do think that his weaknesses are very apparent to the naked eye, while his strengths, while a lot of his strengths aren't apparent to the naked eye when you're watching every day. So I think that almost like exacerbates how most people view the value that he brings to the team. And just to circle back on something you said there about, hey, the stack cast metrics would tell you his defensive value has been greater than his base running value is negative. That is something the numbers are and the formulas are different, but fan graphs metrics agree with that. Baseball prospectuses metrics agree with that. Um, you can quibble as to, you know, has he been the worst base runner in baseball or like a bottom 10% has he been the best defensive catcher in baseball or, or top 10 to 15% but either way that suite of data they all agree that Kirk's defensive value is greater than the cost he he hits you with on the bases now there is a little bit of a a weird thing here where had he been on base more this year, the cost of that base running actually gets greater <laughs> uh, because that is a counting stat. Um, and, you know, his 327 OBP is the is significantly lower than last year. Um, but what you'd be looking at then is like, well, then his offensive value is like back to normal. If he is, uh, you know, he's even even in a down year like this where he's got a 667 OPS, he's, uh, you know, he's got a, a WRC plus of 89. So, um, you know, when we adjust for park factor, and things like that. He's only been about 10% below what an average player uh, would produce in his plate appearances. So um, the other thing here, and this is, I think, getting to the heart of when you talk about what the floor is, what the baseline is for Alejandro Kirk. Um, Chris, there are only two players in all of baseball who swing and miss less frequently than Alejandro Kirk this year. Do you know who they are? Uh, maybe Quan. Quan is, Quan is second. Kirk is third. Okay. 
Yeah. So Quan and I can't. Oh, Arise. Probably. Yeah. So Louisa Rise, who was chasing. I got those. <laughs> yeah. Louisa Rise, who was chasing 400 for a little while there. And then Stephen Kwan, who, uh, you know, is somehow only hitting 271, but is uh, a bat to ball king as well. Now, Alejandro Kirk will never have the the BABIP that those guys have because of the the speed and the, the you know, the line drive rate that has carried Louisa Rise's batting average isn't quite as high. But you do think that, hey, like, I guess where what I'm trying to set up here and continue off of your point is if we're going into the offseason and let's assume Kirk's going to be, you know, on time for camp and he has a little bit better of an offseason in whatever that means to you, um, the ability to refine the add a little bit more hard hit, refine the hey, are you doing damage profile is a lot easier when you already have the swing decisions and the bat-to-ball skill versus if you had hard contact but you were swinging missing a ton. Do you think that that is an easier, like his foundation is easier to build upon than a guy who had kind of the inverse where they were swinging missing a ton, but when they did connect, it was really hard hit? Yeah, like I'd rather be on this end of things rather than having Gary Sanchez and hey, can we turn around his defense? Can we turn around these other things? Like, I think here's maybe a a similar way of asking uh, uh, kind of the same question is what level do you think he needs to hit to make, you know, to make up for the, as we, as I called it earlier, like the, the, the minuses of his game. So does he need to be a 750 OPS guy? Does he need to be 800? I don't think he needs to be 800 when he's at catcher. Um, I think the floor is lower for what you need to hit to be a productive catcher. And I think kind of wins above replacement, all that kind of takes that into account. Like to me, I think it's probably around 750 and I'd be happy, but I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, he was 787 last year and was worth four wins and he's at exactly. six, uh, 686 right now. So a hundred points of difference. And he's only going to finish the season worth about one and a half, maybe two wins. If he, if he catches a heater here. So I think, I mean, there's also an element of, I think Kirk was part of the upside that we were pricing in here with this team as well. And obviously it's a team that has had an okay floor, but hasn't really delivered on the upside side. So yeah, I, I would say North of 750 is probably what you'd like a guy like that to, to be producing. And that gets him to being like a three, three and a half win player in like a two thirds playing time kind of workload, which if, if, you know, Danny Jansen's not going anywhere as a career high home runs, uh, I'd imagine the Jays will have someone else mixing into the DH spot next year, like Brandon Belt has this year, whether it's it's Belt back or Spencer Horwitz. So yeah, if you can be worth three and a half, three wins over 450, 500 plate appearances, that is massive for how, you know, the bottom third of your lineup and kind of those two catcher positions and a bit of DH sprinkling play together. It's huge. Yeah, and I just think, like, listen, this season, if you get another season where you're sub 700, then you've got an issue. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, I just – I see the value. I see the value in an improved season. And if it doesn't happen, then, yeah, you readjust. But I, I definitely think, you know, down season notwithstanding that there's there's merit to hoping for a return or a rebound season. And there are very few, to, to be clear, like part of why Kirk is so valuable and was so exciting last year as a prospect and part of why, you know, some of this was just trade value and market, but part of why the Blue Jays were comfortable trading Gabriel Moreno, who is, you know, hot again right now himself, is that there are just not a lot of catchers who, like what did we say his OPS was last year, 787? There are eight guys 
who have that OPS this year and are, you know, catchers as their primary position. And a couple of those guys are like really part-time guys. So you're talking about like Sean Murphy, Will Smith, Adley Rutschman. Like that's the, that's the tier of catcher that hits at that level. So even if your bar is a little lower than that, um, yeah, there's a real path to Kirk having uh, some more value than he showed this year. Uh, Just, but while we close out the, the Kirk and the base running thing, as I was looking at those stats and again, the Kirk rankings that I read were he's 591st out of 596 in base running value and 534 out of 541 in sprint speed. Uh, Something that I stumbled across while I was looking at those, Chris, is that, Vlad is still pretty good for sprint speed for a guy his size and a first baseman. He's 390th out of 541. So not great, but like somewhere between average and bad. Uh, He is right there with Alejandro Kirk, though, in terms of negative base running value. Um, That to you, a decision making stat or, you know, just too many plays like the one we saw yesterday where wasn't on his horse scoring from a double. And there was a scenario there where if Alejandro Kirk got thrown out at second, Vlad hadn't crossed the plate in time because of the, you know, lack of urgency there. What do you make of Vlad's, Hey, the speed has dropped a bit, not a ton though, but the base running value is in the toilet. Uh, I haven't dove in exactly into his base running. I did in the off season, look at the entire team in their base running last season. Um, I thought it was a big, um, big might not be the right word. I thought it was a factor in terms of Teoscar and Lourdes moving out, Kiermaier, Varsho coming in. Base running was one of the factors in that decision. Um, this season, just overall, from a team-wide perspective, I do think it's just been, there have been some strange decisions. I really thought they were going to be a top 10 base running team. Uh, they haven't this year. I think they're somewhere in the bottom 10 maybe 22, 23-ish zone. And I I think it's, I honestly think it's just pressing, trying to do a little too much. And we've said over the course of the season that you can't effort your way into wins in baseball. Um, I think that, like, I think base running's a classic example. Like, you can't force the opportunities to come. You need to, like, kind of be, always be attentive, always be 100% paying attention and take the opportunities when they're there. But when you try to force them, that's when you run yourself into outs. And I feel like that's what we've seen from the Blue Jays overall this season. And yeah, they are 22nd in base running value. And you can't, you can't effort your way into wins on the base paths. I will say, you know, yesterday worked out fine. Vlad scored, Kirk got the second okay. Plays like that, you can you can run yourself into losses, though, with lack of uh, <laughs> effort and attention to detail. Uh, we won't belabor that one since it was a, you know, a positive 7 nothing victory there, but worth noting that uh, hopefully someone was in his ear there of like, yeah, you can't trust Alejandro Kirk is going to get the second base safely there, man. Uh, run it out. I, I know that was making uh, a Buck Martinez uh, a little upset on the broadcast last night. Um, Chris, we're going to talk about some of the weird transaction stuff around Major League Baseball over the last couple of days. But before we do that, assuming that the Blue Jays are not a player, like, like let's play out the scenario where the Jays don't make a claim on one of these guys for now. Chad Green is obviously the presumed roster call up tomorrow when rosters expand. John Schneider made a comment yesterday about wanting some contact ability in that spot. Now, we have heard a number of times that the Blue Jays like Nathan Lucas's approach at the plate, the ability to come in and work an eight or nine or 10 pitch walk and um, have good at bats and things like that. He adds some defensive replacement value, some pinch running value, but the contact specific point John Schneider made left room for me to think, well, 
maybe Spencer Horwitz. And he obviously doesn't have a path to starting games. Brandon Belt and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. are going to be starting at DH and first base in some form against every righty. And I don't know that you'd want Horwitz to come in and start against a lefty when Belt sits since he is a lefty as well. Um, But what did you make uh, of Schneider mentioning the contact profile? And do you think Spencer Horwitz could be in the mix for this promotion? Spencer Horwitz is a much talked about prospect in our kind of circles of Blue Jays, you know, writers, Blue Jays, production people. There's a lot of fans of Spencer Horwitz. Um, the 450 on base, obviously you see that and you're like, well, yeah, that you think that plays. Um, there are some sites online where you can get kind of some more granular data at AAA, which I've found to be super valuable. I thought it was super valuable in terms of getting me uh, encouraged and enthusiastic about David Schneider. And that's played out very well. Um, Horowitz swings 43% of the time. That's really patient, uh, slightly higher than Schneider, but still good. Chase rates around 25%. Again, very good. Not as good as Schneider, but still very good. The contact rate is very good. Um, the interesting question is, is players coming up from AAA right now, mm-hmm. you know, how it translates to Major League Baseball. The interesting kind of comparison, this guy for Tampa, Ronda, 25-year-old infielder, same league as Horowitz, 339 average, 449 on base, OPS over 1,000. Numbers, like, incredibly similar to what Horowitz has put up this year. And he's hitting 214 so far in a small sample for the Rays. Now, obviously, like, you're not, you're not, you know, lock and key and that, that, you know, that's a perfect reasoning or that explains everything. But it's just, I think it's, you know, players, especially players who, who, have a lot of success based off really good swing decisions coming from the coming from AAA right now. There's still some question about how it will translate, but you know those types of hitters are my favorite types of hitters. So I'd be all for uh, a Horwitz coming up. And Horwitz also has you know one of the things that will come across with Barger or Martinez, for example, if they don't get the call. Part of the explanation will be well, we want them getting every day at bats down at AAA. There's still developmental pieces. You know, Davis Schneider's going to get some runway here with the third base spot. With Spencer Horwitz, he's almost 26. You're a little bit more comfortable with him, you know, only playing on a part-time basis if it helps you down the stretch here. Um, But yes, what Chris is kind of getting at here is that there is an international league right now, a AAA, where the league average OPS is up around 800 and the league average OBP is about 360. And they're working with an automated ball and strike system three days of the week and a challenge system three days of the week. And we've heard players discuss that that's a bit of an adjustment and you can gamify that system a little bit. You can obviously look the, the core skill. If you're going to gamify that system is still identifying balls from strikes, which is a really, really valuable skill, but there's a scenario where, you know, maybe you don't get uh get quite the same level of uh, calls and accuracy uh, gaming that system at the major league level that we do at the AAA level. This is not a question that's unique to the blue Jays. This is something everyone with a team in the international league is dealing with. It's something that everyone has dealt with in the Pacific coast league for years about the offensive environment there with home runs. Uh, and how do you even evaluate a pitcher coming out of that league? Uh, there are different balls being used at different levels of the minors. Uh, this isn't unique to the blue Jays, but when you have a guy with a 450 OBP, it's worth uh, looking at a little bit. So Chris, the other scenario is, Hey, the Jays scoop up one of these waiver wire guys for anyone who missed our chat 
earlier in the week with Ben Clemens. We kind of went through the name, some of the names who have become available and the why. If you missed it, basically a handful of teams have decided to waive a number of players. We used to see this back in the old CBA where teams, even after the trade deadline, could place a player on waivers, work out a trade for them after the trade deadline. That's no longer the case. This is just a straight claim. So if you are one of those teams, all you really care about is you're getting out of one-sixth of the remaining salary for that player. If you're the Angels, you've done this with a number of players so you could potentially duck the tax and get a higher compensation pick when Shohei Otani leaves in free agency. So there's some kind of CBA niche stuff there. But Chris, we're not going to focus on who let these guys go. We're going to focus on who could pick these guys up. There are 17 teams right now within five games of a playoff spot. There are 16 who have at least a 10% chance of making the playoffs per Fangraph's latest playoff odds. There are a handful of right-handed hitting outfielders, which were in short supply at the trade deadline. There are a couple relievers. There's one interesting starter. Um, what is front of mind for you as we head toward this, I, I guess it's 5 p.m. today, kind of uh, post-deadline? I don't know, man. It's it's Tuesday morning in everyone's fantasy league today. Yeah, for someone who went, who went to, uh, who took economics in university, like the game theory on this stuff is fascinating to me in terms of how many claims you put in what, and having to prepare for all these kind of possibilities. And like, I would be fascinated to see the conversations happening in front offices today. Um, I don't know whether like, you know, the top level players will even make it to the Jays portion of the record. I, I I really don't know. Like that's the game theory that I'm, as I said, that I'm really interested in, but you know, the guy I'm interested in, I don't know, like you mentioned, you, you spoke to, to Ben. I don't know where everyone has landed on this. I'm, I'm at the, I'm at the cottage this week, but um, I'm, I, I'm really big on Harrison Bader, like mm-hmm. speed, elite defense, good in a very small sample against lefties this year. Like I like ha- the idea having someone on the bench who can be a, you know, to bring it back to <laughs> potential pinch runner. Um, but also like, Hey, if we're going to pinch him for Kiermaier here, we've got another elite outfielder we can put in to stand alongside Varsha. Or if you're pinch hitting for Varsha or just, I like the flexibility of having another elite defender and runner on the bench. Um, yeah. I'd still be happy with a Renfro or a Gritchuk, but yeah, Bader is, is fascinating and intriguing to me. Uh, Yeah, Bader has, uh, you know, 34 for 39 stealing bases the last two years. If you look at Fangraph's uh, base running statistic, he is among the, you know, highest rated in baseball over the last two seasons. Now, he's a little short on, uh, you know, plate appearances. (laughs) And where do we where do we do a cutoff there? He's obviously played just two partial seasons there. Uh, But if we use, you know, a reasonable cutoff, he's a top 20 base runner on base running value. And again, that's a counting stat. So he gets dinged for not playing uh, a ton in there as well. A righty who hits lefties well, some defensive value. He's an interesting one. The one, the player I've probably gotten asked about most, Chris, in the text line and things like that is Hunter Renfro because I think the he has not been good hitting lefties this year, but of these guys... You know, in if we use the last two, three years as a window, he probably has the highest upside as a righty bat against lefties in terms of, you know, the power. And uh, he looks kind of like Mike Trout. And I think people transpose some of that onto him. Um, are there so Bader's the top of your list for a right handed hitting outfielder. You mentioned that some guys might not even get to the Blue Jays. The way it works for anyone who doesn't know is it's straight reverse standings as of today. So of all these teams in the playoff mix, San Diego 
doesn't qualify for what we said earlier because they're seven and a half games out of a spot and they have less than 10% playoff odds. But if they were to throw their hat in, they would kind of have first dibs and then it would go to teams like, you know, Cleveland who maybe don't do it because they're still five games out. Um, You know, Miami kind of becomes the first interesting swing team there. But the way it works is say you're Miami, let's cut it off at Miami. They're a game under 500. They're only three games out and they decide, well, we got to add someone. Let's put a claim in on a bunch of these guys and they win the claim on six players. They have to cut six players off their 40 man. You can't do the video game thing where you cut one guy, add a guy, cut him, add a guy, cut him, add a guy. You can't do that. You have to clear six 40 man spots. So if you are one of the lesser teams right now and want to fortify the game theory Chris is talking about is, well, how many guys do you put a claim in on? Because you'd like to have some guys, but you can't end up with all of these guys. And from there, There is a question of, you know, once you get to the Jays tier of guys, you maybe you want to make sure you get one of these right handed hitting outfielders. So you 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 think, hey, I don't know if Bader's going to get through. We better put a claim in on Renfro as well. And what if both of those guys get through and you end up with both of them? What does that look like for your 40 man? There's also, Chris, this element of playing defense. And let's use the Blue Jays and Rangers as an example. The Jays are two and a half games back of the Rangers. They're about to play four against them in a, in a week and a half here. And the Rangers' biggest weakness clearly is relief pitching. Reynaldo Lopez and Matt Moore, in addition to some other names, are available as bullpen arms. The Blue Jays don't have an obvious need in the bullpen, but do you put a claim in on one of those guys just in case to keep them from going to a team that really needs him that you're chasing in this wild card race? There are a lot of iterations here, Chris, but I wonder how you feel about that playing defense with the relievers specifically. You can never have too many, but the Jays already have a little bit of a bullpen crunch with Chad Green coming and Eric Swanson uh, probably only missing the minimum on the on the IS here how do you feel about that specifically with the rangers chase here honestly i feel like that's getting a little too cute like i I think you need to take care of your own shop and your shop is adding another position player i think your bullpen's really good and i just the value of potentially blocking someone uh blocking a player from going to a team who might maybe he's already blocked by some other team like i i think you'd be you could be doing damage to your 40 man roster that isn't necessarily required or so I would just personally, if it were me, I would just focus on the bats or the bat that you're hoping to get. And like I said, any of those right-handed bats I think would be helpful. Um, I also think it'll like, I don't think either any of these guys will be a huge difference maker, but I think it's about, you know, the periphery and those, the periphery does matter, especially when you got two regulars on the IL, but yeah, I personally, I would stay away from the, uh, the uh, tomfoolery of blocking pitchers to other teams. And to be clear, I agree with you. I think this is an eyes on your own page situation. Make your own team better. Um, However, Lopez and Moore are probably right around the line of like, okay, well, if you end up with Reynaldo Lopez and it means you option Jay Jackson down and you don't feel great about it, Reynaldo Lopez is pretty good. So, like, obviously yep. this is an... If we were talking Carlos Carrasco, there's no doubt here that that is, you know, he's below the line or, or even a Dominic Leone um, is below the line. Lopez and Moore are just good enough for me to think about it. Um, other question for you of these available guys, Chris, and this isn't Blue Jays related. I, I don't think they would be in the mix for a Lucas Giolito, nor do I think that he would get to them but is there a team that you're looking at 
in the playoff race that you're like, man, Giolito could really help that team because he wasn't awesome for the Angels, but he still has a pretty good track record here. He's one of the best names moved at the deadline on the pitching side. Probably the, you know, if you get four starts down the stretch from a guy like this, that's probably higher value than what any of these outfielders are going to give you in a part-time role. Uh, is there a spot you like for Giolito or more to the Jays point, a spot you really don't want to see Giolito land if you're the Jays? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of teams. Like, to be honest, if I'm the Orioles, I'm adding pitching wherever I can. He's not. They're not going to get to them, though, right? The Orioles. For anyone who doesn't know, uh, the Orioles would have the lowest priority, other than the Dodgers and the Braves. Yeah, exactly. And the other, like, Texas has been pitching really well in terms of starting pitching. Seattle's been pitching really well in terms of starting pitching. Houston, strangely enough, like they're the team that, like, I feel like everyone feels like. You know, if that roster gets in, they're going to be a favorite to make it out of the AL, even as a wild card team. But, you know, they're starting pitching scuffling uh, right now. So is it, you know, do they put in a claim for Giolito again? Do they make it to him? I don't know. Like, but yeah, I just, it's a, there's a lot of good teams, right? Now. Like yeah. all the teams. I don't know if it's because there's also a lot of bad teams that uh, I just, there's not a lot of teams scuffling that are chasing the postseason right now other than kind of the blue jays who are going through a little scuffle but there's just a lot of quality teams this year so yeah i i like i think houston if they added him because they've i think they're kind of bottom five and starting starters era in the second half like even though they've got they seemingly have the arm so that'd be potentially an interesting landing spot I'll tell you who the team I'm most watching today is realistically, as it pertains to the blue Jays, like Texas and and maybe Minnesota are the most interesting because Minnesota has a better waiver priority than any of these wildcard teams, but they are safely in the division. So they're an interesting team, but the one that I would really like to see be aggressive because all that this really costs you is one sixth of the salary. The rest of the way you're one game out of the playoffs. You're running a four man rotation. Now Cincinnati reds, Push some cash in the middle of the table. I, I'd like to see it a little bit. I, uh, I, as you were talking there, I, I knew where you were going, and I did that Cincinnati series with the Jays, and they're they're an exciting team. I would like to see them in over. You know, I'd love to see them make it. Um, just from a from a Votto perspective, from a De La Cruz, they're just, they're an exciting team to watch. So yeah, I like that call. Yeah. And they're also like their style of play. If they get into a playoff series and like, obviously with their youth and where they are in the development curve, like you're playing with house money at that point. So you could kind of, you could kind of gum it up and go with the David strategy a little bit of like, if we get a guy on base, we are running, we're going to run down everyone's throat. And you look at, you know, I think the the third wild card in the NL will match up with Milwaukee, but the wild card race is tight enough that maybe it's Philadelphia too. You could have this interesting, like, well, Real Muto's the best defensive catcher we've seen in a long time. He's the king of pop time, but so many of these Philly starters are slow to the plate and the Reds are going to run on everything. Uh, there could be some real fun uh, sizing up those wild card matchups if the Reds get in. So let's hope they, uh, they put a little claim in on Giolito and we see how that shakes out. Uh, Chris, before I let you go here, another really encouraging start, albeit with a, a lesser pitch count there because of some, uh, you know, defensive issues behind him and things like that. But Ricky Tiedemann the other day, three and two thirds innings, strikes out 11 batters. So every single out was a strikeout. Obviously, this year has not been the year the Jays were hoping for. Some injury issues, the, the biceps injury and things like that for Tiedemann. But when you see a stat line like that, when you look at some of the swings and misses, uh, how optimistic are you about Tiedemann for 2024? Uh, 
as optimistic as any Jays pitcher in the last, you know, as long as I've been covering this team. Um, they, when you watch, I watched every pitch on a computer screen, but like he's, I've seen some, some outings like this from him when it's, when he is commanding his pitches, it is lights out for these for these hitters, whatever level he's at, they're overmatched. And he could, I said in the off season, when I looked at some of the stuff that he was doing, especially against lefties, like he can get big league lefties right now. Like his stuff is that nasty. I'm not saying call him up. I'm not advocating for that, but like the stuff is that good. And he makes minor league hitters look silly. Like some of the, some of the numbers in terms of whiff rate or called strike, called and swinging strike percentage, like they're, they're absurd numbers. And I've just, I'm really looking forward to, you know, does he start the year next year up on the big club? Does he start at Buffalo? Like come Dunedin, February, like that's going to be, if not the number one story, uh, a top three story for me for the Blue Jays next year. So yeah, very excited to see what he does in the next uh, 12 months. It should be uh, a lot of fun. Chris, I've taken up enough of your cottage time more than I anticipated. So sorry for that. But thanks for taking the time out. Uh, enjoy the rest of your, I guess, weekend since it's already Thursday. And if you're up at the cottage, I imagine you're there for the weekend. Uh, I am jumping on a flight tomorrow morning to go oh. to Denver. There is a, yep, I will be at Coors Field this weekend. Looking forward to it. Uh, getting back in the saddle for a few games and then doing the homestand as well for or two series at home. Uh, later in September. So well, looking forward to awesome. it. Awesome. Are you on the Rangers series at home? I am. Biggest yes. series of the season. Let's go. I know, right? Somehow I got on it. So uh, it works out sometimes. All right. Uh, Chris, enjoy the cottage. Uh, safe flight. Have fun in Denver. Thanks again, buddy. Thanks, Blake. Bye. Chris Black, producer of our Blue Jays broadcast and tennis and, and some other things here at Sportsnet at Down to Black on Twitter. Make sure you follow him there for stats thread, video thread, things like that. Uh, and if you want to see more of that Ricky Tiedemann stuff from the other day, Chris had a video up about it. Uh, we're going to take a break. The second hour today, uh, we've got a fun one. We'll have Dan Schulman on. We'll have Lance Brozdowski, who's come on with us before, a really great pitching analyst. We'll, we'll do some Jays stuff, but we'll also look at, uh, a little closer at Giolito Lopez more, how he could pretend, how they could potentially help a team or help a, a team that's competing with the Blue Jays here. Um, we're going to take a break right now. We'll do a couple of text line questions when we come back, but I went so long with Chris that this next segment isn't going to be uh, too long. Uh, but I will sprinkle in a few of your questions next as Jays Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to JStock Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Uh, to answer a question I got on Twitter... Yes, today is the deadline for those waiver guys to be claimed. Uh, you have to be on a team's 40-man today or the 60-day IL to be playoff eligible. You can still add guys to your major league roster in September, uh, but if you're not on the 40-man today, with the exception of some you know, injury replacement scenarios where you were already in the organization, for the most part, if you're not on the 40-man today, you ain't eligible for the playoffs. So there will be some roster turnaround baseball couple of these guys will get claimed. Believe the waiver deadline's 5 p.m. However, this is a blind process. So when the news actually trickles out, uh, we're not sure. Uh, when guys went on waivers on Tuesday, uh, the newsbreakers started tweeting the news out around 20 after 5. So maybe that's the timeline you're looking at here. Maybe uh, people will be more excited 
than that. A um, couple updates from yesterday. He didn't see Brandon Belt again. He's dealing with back spasms. Uh, he said he doesn't, you know, it's more of a more of a day-to-day thing than anything that's expected to cost him uh, a bunch of times. Bobachet and Matt Chapman and Eric Swanson, of course, still on the IL, the team hoping with all three that they might miss the minimum or very close to it. Chad Green pitched yesterday in what we assume will be his final rehab outing. He came in in the middle of an inning, which is something the Jays wanted him to accomplish before coming back up. Really, they were just waiting for September 1st, uh, but they kept adding these these new wrinkles on. Um, over Chad Green's rehab stint, 12 and a third inning, two earned runs. Both of those came on a home run where he hung a slider to Brett Beatty. 12 and a third inning, 15K to one walk. That's the headline stat there. Uh, His velocity averaged 94.6 over the course of his rehab assignments. Uh, It got a little higher than that at times. There were times where it didn't quite reach that. If you are pricing in some, hey, the adrenaline might be higher in the majors, maybe you can nudge him up to 95. Uh, That's fine. He was at 94 and a half before he underwent Tommy John surgery and he was effective. He was kind of up around 96 when he was at his best, uh, but his curveball is his best pitch anyway. So, you know, the, the fastball is still going to be used a lot, but it has to be effective enough to set up the curveball, not necessarily uh, be a blow away pitch on its own. Uh, we continue to wait for an Alec no update on when he's going to pitch down at AAA. Uh, and again, whether or not via this waiver process, uh, rosters expand tomorrow. So the Blue Jays will have Uh, a couple other pieces in the fold when they get underway against Colorado. A couple of questions in the text line. Uh, Dan from Georgetown wants to uh, respect the guy who threw the, the, who threw Kirk out on a rope, uh, Jacob Young, who was, uh, you know, fresh up from the minors in doing so. He's had a, he had an up and down series. He had some cool stuff. He bunted for a hit. He, uh, yeah, was good on the base pass, good in center field. And then he also got picked off at second base after a double. Yeah. You always respect the fielder here, but it doesn't change the fact that we can measure the speed of that throw and how long it took to get the home plate and a faster runner would have been there. Uh, you can, you can appreciate both sides. Uh, Roger in the nine Oh five asks if uh, the new baseball strategy going forward with all these wild card spots available, um, fewer options at the deadline. And now teams wait to the waiver wire to pick players up. I think it's possible. I think that has to do with the not with both the extra wild card spots and the no post trade deadline waiver trade thing. Um, you know, teams maybe just want, yeah, an extra month of games to determine exactly where they're at. Now, the one thing that is always going to overrule that is you get nothing other than salary relief this way. If you are a seller at the trade deadline, you pick up prospects, even fringy ones, whereas here all you get is the financial relief. And if you're the Angels, you know, you shouldn't be employing this as a strategy because you traded away a bunch of prospects and spent money to add these guys and then have to turn around and not recoup the prospects, just save a little bit of the money and a little bit of the room under, under the tax. So probably more likely in the current environment, but I wouldn't advocate for it as a strategy. Um, Johnny in Ajax says, let's not forget Kirk had a newborn at the beginning of the year could make anyone's life tougher. I mean, Johnny, a a part of the story with Kirk has been that he was late to camp and and what that entails, how it may be affected his off season. Uh, The Jays have like a half dozen guys who had newborns over the course of the first half of this season. We're not using that as, you know, Hey, Jay Jackson's slider wasn't breaking a lot today. He's dealing with, 
you know, his son back in Salt Lake City, uh, it's a factor and these are part of the stories. But if you are well enough to be out there, you're well enough to be evaluated. And we're like five months removed from that at this point. It, it can be tough, but, um, you know, a lot of players around baseball go through that uh, as well. Frosty in Vancouver says it's way past time the Jays promoted whoever's instructing bison hitters to the show. Uh, that is Matt Hag is the uh, the pit, the hitting coach rather down at AAA. We're actually going to try to get him on the show in the coming weeks because David Schneider spoke so highly of him. Uh, Ernie Clement, a couple of the other guys who I've spoken to down at the park as well. And, and yeah, the results are really mu- are very much there for the Buffalo Bisons. We'll see if they make the second half playoffs here. They're about two games out. They have hit like crazy. They have a big run differential, um, but the wins haven't quite kept up to those numbers just yet. I also think, you know, it's, uh, it's worth keeping in mind that the overall offensive environment in the international league right now is really high. And whether that's just the automatic ball strike system and the challenge system, whether that is owing to, hey, the Buffalo Bisons are, are hitting really, like Spencer Horwitz's 950 OPS is still way higher than league average. Uh, he's been about 50% better than a league average hitter in terms of WRC plus there, uh, which controls for the, the ballpark and things like that. Um, but you do have to acknowledge, at least when it comes to, you know, the strikeout to walk ratio and things like that, uh, that, the rules are a little different there. And because this is all pretty new, we're not entirely sure how to translate that stuff yet. In the case of David Schneider and Ernie Clement, hey, so far so good when they've come up uh, to the majors. Uh, so yeah, Matt Hagg's the guy you want to uh, give some credit to there. We'll try to get him on the show uh, at some point. Eric from Burlington asks, why so many people are calling for our young prospects to call up right now? You'd rather see them next year for service time purposes. Uh, look, man. Service time is a real thing. You're also in a playoff race here, though. You don't you don't hurt your playoff chances in 2023 because a guy might reach arbitration a little earlier in 2027. You just don't manage it that way. The bigger argument is you don't want them sitting on the bench and not playing regularly. You'd rather have the developmental reps down at AAA and you don't want a young prospect to sit on the bench not playing. I don't think it's a service time thing uh, nearly as much as it is. Well, what is how much is this player going to play? What is that very specific utility and who is best suited for that? So whether it's Spencer Horwitz or, or Nathan Lucas, I think it's probably one of those two names unless the Jays get someone off the waiver wire here. Uh, we're going to take a break and talk to Dan Schulman. On the other side, he will not be on this Rocky series because he is calling the Canada basketball games at the FIBA World Cup. Canada has advanced to the second round. We're going to talk to Dan about lots of Blue Jays stuff, of course, but we'll give you a little preview of the second round of Canada basketball in the men's FIBA World Cup as well. Dan Schulman joins us next as Jays Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Fresh views on everything in the National Football League. It's the Fan Checkdown with Matt Marchese and Donovan Bennett. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Stock Plus. I'm Blake Murphy, Canada. Ah, Toronto Blue Jays off today. Rather, Canada's off today, too. It's all classification games over in the FIBA World Cup. It's a little... Look, you got to be a little careful with this given Canada's history, but it is like kind of a little funny to see France in a classification game against Iran instead of being in the second round where Canada finds themselves. They are back in action tomorrow morning on Sportsnet at 9.30 a.m. They'll play Brazil as they kick off their second round schedule. The voice you will hear calling those games and not Blue Jays this weekend is our next guest, Dan Schulman. Dan, good morning. How are you, man? I'm sitting in my... A car and a bee just flew in. So other than that, I'm doing great. 
<laughs> oh, that's uh, that's a tough one. You're not allergic or anything like that, right? I am not. Okay. Uh, the bee flew out and I rolled up the windows. But I will tell you as well, in full candor, I'm getting a wicked echo right now. So I don't know if Nicholas wants to call me back, but uh, there's like two of me. And that's that's more of me than anybody needs. Uh, we are not hearing it, so we're okay unless you want to. No, let's keep going then. All right. Uh, so we're going to talk Canada basketball in a second. That Those are your duties for, for this six-game set while the Blue Jays are out on the road you've been doing all this double duty uh and so thank you for making the time out uh the blue jays made it easy for us yesterday pretty smooth game with a seven nothing victory a pretty easy one to uh to call and analyze uh they have also you know the benefit of well they only used jay jackson yesterday they only used bowden francis the day before that they have an off day today when you look at how that is set up for this weekend series. They are about to play some very, very bad teams, but given the level of rest, they've been able to get to the bullpen for better or for worse. Are you heading into this stretch before that big Texas series in kind of every game is treated like a, not a must win, but you gotta, you can't leave anything on the table, even against lesser teams this weekend. And now we've lost Dan. We should have reconnected with him. After all, we'll try to uh, we'll try to get him back. Uh, what I was kind of getting at there is, you know, these are bad teams, and normally you maybe wouldn't think of playing a last place team and, and thinking, hey, you got to use every bullet you have available to you uh, because they're lesser teams, and you're thinking ahead to different scenarios and next games. But the Blue Jays are running out of time, and these are not the last nine games of the season, but they're the last nine games before a huge four game set with Texas. And they're the last nine games you'll play uh, against lesser opponents. So you may have to, uh, not may have to, you really have to take advantage of these. Uh, Dan, before we lost you there, basically what I was setting up is uh, the Jays bullpen, very well rested for better or for worse, off day today, haven't used a lot of arms lately. Are you treating this series against Colorado, this series against Oakland coming out of it? Um, Obviously, they're not must win games mathematically but is everything on the table to make sure you take i don't know seven or eight of these next nine absolutely i I don't see how it can't be uh you know the good news is you've got an extra arm coming Uh, we assume it's chad green so that you've got nine relievers uh i think it's almost playoff baseball i I mean this is the position they're in being two and a half out of a playoff spot so um if it was a month earlier i would say no and and but, uh, but I, I think so. I, I think you got to win the game in front of you right now. And, and part of the reason you have so much depth in your bullpen is that so if Romano can pitch, you can use Hicks. If Swanson can pitch once he's back, you can use Green. If Mesa can pitch, you can use Cabrera. So, yeah, I, I think it's uh, full steam ahead every game. They, they've got to make up ground right now over these next nine games. What you know, whatever the magic number is, 6-3, and 7-2, and 8-1, and one, whatever it is, I, I don't know. But they've got to play – really, really well and put themselves in a decent uh, situation by the time Texas comes to town. Here's a magic number for you. Nine and oh, I mean, these teams, yeah, have that a, works. <laughs> they have a combined three ten winning percentage when they're not playing against each other. It's uh, it, it's, I know the road games and, and it's travel and things like that. Uh, but this is the time you mentioned Chad green. We are all very, very close to certain that he will be the extra arm added tomorrow. When rosters expand, he has had a pretty good and pretty extended run here in tune up games, 12 and a third innings, Two earned runs, a 15 to one strikeout to walk ratio, fastball velocity up to about 94 and a half. Now he's coming 
off Tommy John. We haven't seen him in the major leagues in a while. So we have to temper expectations a, a little bit. But this is a guy you have seen a lot of over the years, both as a, you know, calling the Blue Jays games and calling postseason games when the Yankees were involved. Uh, what are your expectations for what Chad Green can add to this bullpen? If he's himself, that's great. If he's himself, that's, he's a guy who, I mean, he could close a game if you want him to. I don't think they'll need him to do that. But if you if you want three outs in the eighth inning, okay. If you want five outs, you know, from the sixth through the seventh, okay. He can do that. He's Nothing is going to intimidate him. As you said, he's been through, you know, he's been around the block a few times. So, um, it, you, you know, it, I don't know how you want to rank these guys. Like you've got Romano at the end, and then you've got Hicks is probably the second guy. But uh, Chad Green to me goes in there. Swanson's not here right now, but you know, is he at the Jimmy Garcia level? Is he ahead of Jimmy Garcia? He's just another dependable quality arm. Another guy who can go out and get three outs. So you don't have to use another guy for a second inning or another guy who can go out and get three outs. So you don't have to use another guy a second day in a row. It's just another option. It's another guy who should be able to get big outs. Maybe you can get the starter out of there a little bit earlier when you've got that extra reliever on the team. So I think he'll help. I mean, again, this is strengthening arguably the strongest part of their team, which is great for them to get to in the playoffs. They've got to do better on the weaker side, which is the offense, right? That's really what's ultimately, I think, going to determine whether they get in or not. But getting Chad Green is going to be a nice addition. And then on the offensive side, you can obviously add another position player with rosters expanding here. It's not quite as straightforward as the Chad Green one. It may also be temporary because we're anticipating Bo Bichette and Matt Chapman missing, if not the minimum, then close to the minimum. So they could potentially be back in that Kansas City series when the Jays are back home. Uh, but John Schneider you know, maybe tip their hand a little bit yesterday. He mentioned that a contact profile at the plate is something they would like to add to this team. Uh, you know, we'd given how they've used the end of the roster spots in the past. It seemed like maybe it was a Nathan Lucas spot here. Do Schneider's comments change your thinking on that? Do you, do you give a Spencer Horwitz type a, a longer look? How do you feel about the position player addition tomorrow? Well, the first thing was, so I was in the office when Schneider said that, and I kind of smiled on the inside <laughs> Because I was like, oh, it's a mystery. It's a game. Like, now it's a clue. He's given us a clue. And, and I think he said what he said for a reason. I don't think he was surprised he got the question. And I think maybe he just said it so he wouldn't have to deal with a lot of Arelvis Martinez and Addison Barger hmm. questions. I'm not, I'm not sure. But I think there are two possibilities, and you named both of them. Um, like, I know Nathan Lucas isn't the, you know, he's 28 years old. Is he a prospect? You know, maybe not the sexiest name out there. But he's done fine when he's been with the Blue Jays, which wasn't very often. He barely played. And he's had a really nice AAA year as well. So I think it could be Lucas or it could be Horwitz. Um, as you know, and I heard you and Chris Black talking about it, like if Brandon Belt is okay, there's not much of a spot for Spencer Horwitz unless it's coming off the bench. And that was another line that Schneider said. We want somebody who can, he didn't say thrive, but who can do well when they're not playing very often like that's, you know, you're not calling up a guy to play six days a week at this point. I don't think so. Uh, it, you know, maybe it's just a pinch hitting kind of thing. Um, you know, if Alejandro Kirk starts at catcher and his bats not going great, could Horowitz come off the bench and pinch hit against a, a righty in the seventh inning? Maybe. Yeah. So I think it's going to be either Horowitz or Lucas. Lucas obviously offers, more of a defensive possibility can play all three outfield spots and he's a better runner. Although I don't know that we would see him as a pinch runner all that much as possible. Horwitz is the intriguing guy 
and, and I am a card-carrying member of the Spencer Horowitz fan club. Uh, my wallet's getting kind of thick because I was mm-hmm. in the David Schneider fan club early. I'm in the Ernie Clement fan club now. and now i got a lot of fan clubs going on right now, but I think the dude can hit. And I know offense is up at AAA, as I heard you guys talk, but um, I've talked to people who have played with him and know him very well, and to a man, everybody has said, it's real. It's real. So the strike zone judgment, um, I think the power is coming. The power is growing. If you look at what he's done in the second half of the season, mm-hmm. the power is coming. Mostly, I hope he's on the 26-man roster next year, to be honest with you. That's where I spend about 99% of my Spencer Horwitz uh, thoughts, but um, I think he's got a shot, and, and maybe just as a pinch hitter, but I, I think there is some value there if he if he's the guy that they pick up certainly and you, up. you look ahead to 2024 well brandon belt's a free agent and everyone's really liked having him but if you have you know if you have brandon belt at home or you think someone could be brandon belt uh from your right. minor league system maybe give it a shot if if nathan lucas does get the call and anyone is disappointed by that in any way because they've heard everything about spencer horowitz and seen the numbers uh he nathan lucas hitting 345 at AAA and mm-hmm. has a, an ops four points higher like zero zero four points it's higher than Spencer Horwitz, so not a yeah. not a, a terrible option there. I guess the other, if you had asked me this a couple days ago, hey, Bobachet's going on the IL and rosters are expanding, I would have guessed that both of those guys were up. Were you caught off guard or surprised at all by the the Mason McCoy decision when Bo hit the IL? Uh, a little bit. I mean, Otto Lopez is on the IL. I, I guess what surprised me, and I don't know, you know, we don't have to get into the whole pinch running thing, mm-hmm. but they they. You know, they called him up not to hit. They called him up because he can play defense and he can run. And I, I was surprised he didn't run in that situation. We didn't talk much about it on the air at all, to be honest with you. And I remember in the moment wondering if I was missing something. Like, I just I just wanted to make sure I knew, um, you know, what was going on. But I, I was a little bit surprised um, because they have Clement and they have Espinal. They already have two guys who can play shortstop. So... Um, and they've got like five guys who can play third base and four guys who can play second base. So they're, they're not short there. Um, it wouldn't have surprised me if Lucas came up, even though that's not a positional thing, uh, you know, a positional fit. So, I mean, the short answer is yes. I, I was surprised that Mason McCoy came up because I, I just didn't see that many opportunities for them to use him. Like, I, I happen to think Ernie Clement can really play defense from mm-hmm. what I've seen. Like, I, I've watched him do drills before the game and seen a handful of plays, mostly it's short. He can pick it. Uh, I mean, he's good. So like you're not, I don't think you're putting McCoy in for Clement defensively. So are you moving, you know, one of them to second or one of them to third? Uh, maybe, I guess, but it just seems to me like they, you know, between Schneider and Biggio and Espinal and Merrifield who can play second, you know, they've got a lot of coverage. So yeah, I, I thought they might bring up somebody, who might be able to contribute with the bat. I, I, I don't think it's Aurelvis Martinez or Addison Barger. It's, um, that's not happening, in my opinion. Um, if, if, if I think there's a 1% chance of one of them, I would pick Aurelvis Martinez over Addison Barger at this point. But I, I thought it might be Nathan Lucas, and I know it doesn't, doesn't make sense. But, well, we'll see how it goes. There could be – they might change their minds, like on – like tomorrow – there might be two guys coming up and McCoy going back down. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like John Schneider got Mason McCoy into that game last night. And part of that, part of that made me think he wanted to, he wanted to get him in a bat. You, you know, don't want he, him to be Whit Merrifield's right. dad and have right, two right. days of service time and zero games. Right. 
Right. Yeah. Moonlight Graham in real life. And, and you know, that, that sort of thing. And Moonlight got to the plate once, but um, or, or in the movie. But yeah, but it, part of me made it. That, that's what made me think, hmm, I wonder if two guys are coming. But uh, the beauty is 24 hours from now, we'll we'll all know what's going on. And and they'll be adding some pieces that can help them. Um, and, and they've got to get on a run like there's no there's no time like the present and uh, funky things happen in Colorado, even with bad Colorado teams sometimes. Right. But, but they've got to roll through these next nine games and put themselves in the best uh, position they can. I, I actually sat and watched the end as I was doing some Canada, Brazil prep last night. Um, I had the Mets and the Rangers uh, oh, yeah. uh, on my TV in the background. It's a fun time of year right now. So, you know, the, uh, the Mets did the blue Jays a solid yesterday. They uh, hit a two run home run in the eighth and then, Texas absolutely blew an opportunity in the top of the ninth, and then a roll to Chapman hit a guy to uh, to force in the the winning run. So it was a, that was a good night for the Blue Jays. DJ Stewart going absolutely Jose Batista 09 mode with uh, I think eight home runs, nine home runs in uh, this last little stretch here. Uh, you mentioned you're doing prep for Canada basketball. Let's pivot there now. I, I will say the one other possibility with the roster expansion, there are a whole bunch of guys on waivers right now. We'll find that out a little later today if the Blue Jays were involved in that and anyone made it to them. Uh, Canada, we know the roster. The only question mark is, hey, is Lou Dort back tomorrow? That is the expectation. But for anyone who hasn't been paying attention, hasn't been hearing Dan on the calls on Sportsnet, the Canadian senior men's basketball team had a perfect 3-0 and first round at the FIBA World Cup. They had the highest point differential in the first round. They'll now play Brazil on Friday and Spain on Sunday, both of those games at 9.30 a.m. on Sportsnet. Uh, and the top two from their pool of four, Canada, Latvia, Brazil, and Spain, will advance to the quarterfinals. Uh, Dan, what have your impressions of, of this club been through the first three games here? They were the best team in the first round. Kind of feels yeah. like maybe there's an even higher upside to reach for this group. Yeah, they've been great. And I know you watched all three games. You know, they're down. They're very sluggish in the first quarter against France. And it's like, oh, man, uh, are they going to get it going offensively? They look disjointed. You know, France looks composed. And then, you know, boom. And in the second half, uh, Shea Gilgis-Alexander just takes over. And I thought in that game, their energy and their defense was huge. Like, they, if Canada's going to do really, really, really well, and they can, a lot of it's going to be defense turning into offense a lot. They have those kinds of defenders. They can get out in transition. They can score before the other team sets up their defense. So, you know, the win over France was exhilarating. Like for all, for you and me and everybody else who has followed Canada basketball, it was like, is this really happening? Because usually we're on the other side of this and, and that sort of thing. Uh, Lebanon went as expected. And then the Latvia game I thought was fascinating. I mean, they were in trouble in the first quarter. They were down 12 a couple of times. They couldn't guard them. They just couldn't figure it out. And I thought Jordy Fernandez, the head coach, did a masterful job of, you know, plugging the leaks that had sprung, and and eventually the talent won out. You know, R.J. Barrett hit some threes, and Shea had another big game. And, and it was great to see guys like Melvin Edgeman and Phil Scrub get, like, real minutes in a real game at this level and be big contributors. So uh, it was great. Um, 3-0 going into the second round. You take your record with you, as you know. That's huge. And for people who don't know, it's as you said, it's Brazil tomorrow and Spain Sunday. I think a lot of people are really going to focus on the Spain game. Tomorrow's actually the bigger one. Um, if they win tomorrow and Spain beats Latvia and they'll be favored, Canada's in the quarters already. Mm -hmm. If they lose tomorrow, it gets dicey. 
And the last thing you want to do is put yourself at the mercy of FIBA tie-breaking rules. So tomorrow is a huge, huge game. Um, They should win. They're better than Brazil, but Brazil has played well so far um, in this tournament. You know, they they played Spain tough and lost by 10 points at the end, 98-88. So hopefully Lou Dort is back. That's another elite defender. Uh, when I watch Canada, I mean, they, they can play with anybody. I'm always a little worried about some days the three ball falls, some days it don't. And this is a team that could have some cold spells shooting the three. As long as they've got other ways to score, I think they'll be okay. And this is a Brazil team for anyone who hasn't caught them yet. Um, they are one of the highest volume three-point shooting teams in the tournament. So that's, uh, you know, they, they've only shot 37%, but they've hit 14 threes a, a couple of times. Uh, Iago Santos, their, their lead point guard, is a very interesting piece. They lost Raul Neto, which hurts. But, hey, mm-hmm. if you are a Canadian basketball fan, if you're a Raptors fan, you are going to see – the optimal version of Bruno Caboclo tomorrow too. <laughs> he is FIBA. Bruno is a real, real thing. Uh, he didn't have a very good game in their final uh, round Robin game, but he is going to be a problem on the boards. Uh, the other element of this, Dan, and obviously getting to the quarterfinals, the most important thing you can do is win every game and keep your eyes on your own page and things like that. But I know that some people look at the World Cup as, in addition to the World Cup, hey, it's an Olympic qualifier. And for Canada to qualify for the 2024 Olympics, that's something they haven't done since the year 2000. They have to finish as one of the top two teams from the America zone. Five of the seven America's teams in this tournament have made the second round. The U.S. are probably going through. Canada are in good shape to go through. The Dominican Republic are in good shape to go through and look like one of the best teams in the round robin. You can do yourself a favor tomorrow as well by not mathematic. Like, you effectively knock out Brazil, who are one of your competitors for that as well. Um, How much are your eyes on what the Dominican Republic are doing right now as well when it comes to Olympic qualification? Constantly. So... Like in baseball, I'm looking at tiebreakers, and in basketball, I'm looking at all of the different groups. Like that's just my old statistics and actuarial mind. I can't help it. It's it's the it's the way it works. You're right, and and you know to to finish on the podium of the World Cup would be phenomenal. But let's be honest: for most people in Canada, this is about qualifying for the Olympics, even more than it's about doing well at the World Cup. If if I said to you they could finish fifth at the World Cup and not qualify or seventh at the World Cup and qualify, that's an easy choice, right? You take seventh and qualify. Yeah. Like, there's no, there's no doubt. So, yeah, you have to look at what the other countries are doing, but you can't control what the other countries are doing. So, like you said, if Canada beats Brazil tomorrow, basically that's it for Brazil. Puerto Rico does not look like they've got what it takes to, you know, crazier things have happened, but they're probably not a factor. So it looks like it's down to the U.S., Canada, and the Dominican and the Dominican, the Dominican Republic with Carl Anthony Towns is in, in my opinion, the weakest mm-hmm. quarter quartile or quarter remaining quarter of, of the pool. Um, if you're rooting for something, if you're a Canadian basketball fan of rooting for something, root for the Dominican to lose every time they play. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also root for maybe the Dominican and the U S to face each other in a quarterfinal because then somebody's got to lose. And realistically, you probably want that somebody to be the Dominican losing. If Canada gets to the semifinals, they're fine. But if Canada loses in the quarters, then you've got like five, eight, six, seven. You still play a couple more games. And in theory, Canada could be in that group and the Dominican could be in that group. So at least they would settle it on the court in all likelihood. The, the, the big next step for Canada is just qualify for the quarterfinals. 
then you know you still almost uh, assuredly control your own destiny. But yeah, the Dominican um, has an easier ride, but it, there's no point wasting any energy on that. It's like, man, the Minnesota Twins are in an easy division. <laughs> like, like, what are you going to do about it, right? So this is where you are. Go win the game that's in front of you. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I've had some people ask me about, like, well, would a loss be the worst thing because then maybe you don't draw into the United States' bracket no, in the semifinal? No, yeah, no, 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 Don't no, do no. that. Don't do that. It's also, the, the actually, you know, if we're, if we're going on betting odds or just our own feel, the likeliest scenario is actually the U.S. against Dominican in the quarters is, is how right. I read Correct. the way things shake out. So then you're looking at a spot, hey, you get to the semis, even if you draw the U.S., you've gotten to the Olympics at that point because one of them will knock each other out. Uh, Dan, before I let you go here and, and get on with your day and your prep, uh, you mentioned Jordy Fernandez a little earlier, pulling the right levers, pressing the right buttons. He's a name that's gotten familiar to people here because he was in the mix for the Toronto Raptors head coaching job. He's a, been a key figure in uh, I mean, the Spanish program in the past, the Nigeria program, Jamal Murray's ascension in Denver. Uh, I know he wore a kiss shirt on the broadcast with you guys, which, yeah. hey, uh, that, that's bonus points for from me there as well. Uh, how how much have you been impressed by by Jordy Fernandez, uh, the person and the coach, and what we've seen so far? I love. Firstly, I, I love him. I didn't know him at all until he got the job, and then Sportsnet asked me if I would do a sit down interview with him, which I was thrilled to do. I'm not, uh, you know, that's not what I do really, but I was thrilled. And then. They were very nice to me because I had Blue Jay games at night. They let me come to one of the morning practices um, and just talk to him. And I talked to Rowan Baird and get, you know, because I was doing the games and I sat all by myself hmm. and it was the first practice they had. And not that he was shaking hands and introducing himself. He had met everybody before Zoom phone calls, but it was literally their first practice as a group. And I'm thinking to myself, man, this is a guy, everybody knows who he is. And he's definitely got some FIBA cred and some NBA cred. But he's trying to bring, like, some star-level NBA players in quickly. He's got to get them to buy in quickly, and he's done it. And to me, that's the best thing you can say about him. When he talks in a huddle, like, their eyes are locked on him. They're doing what he tells them to do. He's an interesting guy because he's very, very soft-spoken if you're just sitting there and and talking to him, kiss shirt notwithstanding (laughs) that he wore on the air. There's obviously another side to him that we haven't seen, but but he's very soft spoken. But you know we've heard him in the huddles, right? When you watch FIBA games, you get the ball, you get the sound in the huddles. And uh, I promise you, when I tell you this, some of the stuff that you haven't seen, which just happened to coincide when we were in break, we still see it in the studio. He gets their attention when he needs to. So I think both his tactics, like his strategies, they're great. But I think the best thing he's done is he has connected with them as individuals, and he has gotten them to buy in because all of not all of these guys but many of these guys are stars right and and some of them are taking somewhat different roles here on team canada than they do even in the nba to a certain extent so I, i'm thrilled for him and for Owen baird and for michael bartlett and, and for all these guys that have worked tirelessly to try to get canada to where they are now they're not there yet but uh the three and oh start is you know, everything we could have hoped for and more. The point differential is everything we could have hoped for and more. And I think the Latvia game, the fact that they kind of got slapped in the face in the first quarter and responded as well as they did, I think they'll come out roaring against Brazil. Like, they, there won't be any more, and I'm not saying they did. They're not going to take anybody for granted. They know now, hey, anybody can be good. Anybody can be a threat. And any one loss can seriously jeopardize, if not 
kill their chances of getting to the Olympics. So I think, you know, Canada, Brazil tomorrow, they got to play that like it's a final because that's the magnitude of the importance of the game. Uh, I will say the one thing that the one benefit of doing this show while those games are on is I get the same feed that you get here in the studio. I can't uh, have it with audio, but I can keep an eye <laughs> on those things. And I've had people tweet in to me, be like, we can see you reacting to the basketball game while you're doing a baseball show, man. So uh, that's the, uh, the root cause there. Dan Schulman, thanks for taking the time out this morning, 9 30 AM tomorrow, Canada, Brazil, uh, Sunday, 9 30 AM, Canada, Spain. Uh, enjoy it, man. Keep up the great work. And, and thanks again. Thanks Blake. We'll see you soon. Dan Schulman voice of the Toronto Blue Jays, voice of Canada basketball at the FIBA World Cup. And, and yeah, that was a little more basketball on this baseball show. Uh, if that's not for you, well, one, uh, it's my show. Two, it's Dan Schulman. We talk about what Dan Schulman wants to talk about. But also the Jays are off today and not a single team that they're playing uh, in the wild card race with is off and we're not going to or is playing. Uh, there is there will be no relevant movement in the standings today. And there are uh, no news morsels uh, trickling down yet as for this waiver stuff. So uh, you could deal. We're going to get it back to baseball in a second here. Uh, we're going to take a break. We're going to talk to Lance Brzezdowski. He's been on the show before. Great pitching analyst. He also had a, a YouTube video up at his YouTube channel at Lance Braz. Uh Recently, he was able to get his hands on some minor league organizational pitching data and take a look at, hey, what teams are doing what? What are the most successful teams doing organizationally? He's got some thoughts for us on some of the Blue Jays' major league pitchers as well, but we'll get the pick Lance's brain on, on what the Jays look like as a minor league pitching organization as well. Lance Brzezdowski next on Jays Talk Plus on Sportsnet 360 and the Sportsnet Radio Network. Smart takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jays Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Uh, good arms versus bad arms. That is what Lance Brzezdowski tried to evaluate when he got his hands on. I imagine through like espionage, like we we have the New York Knicks uh, suing the Toronto Raptors for getting their internal proprietary information through nefarious means right now. That's how I imagine our next guest uh, got the data for his latest project over at Lance Braz on YouTube. It's Lance Brzezdowski, player development analyst at Marquee and, and uh, his Substack and YouTube channel at Lance Braz. Lance, good morning. How are you, man? I'm good. They're going to make a Netflix untold series about how I got this information. So I'm excited for that. Absolutely. But <laughs> just, just reams of data. So, um, but you, you did and jokes aside about how you got it. You, you were able to get your hands on some minor league organizational pitching data, pitching tendencies, things like that. You did have a breakdown of it on your YouTube channel, but for anyone who didn't catch that or, or is going to catch it later after we direct them there, um, when you get this information, what are you, what are you looking for in it? What were you trying to do uh, with this project? Yeah. I mean, this is my favorite stuff to look at. I feel like sometimes I get so in the weeds looking at individual pitchers most of the time that I sometimes hesitate to like back up and look at org level, what a team is doing, especially in the minor league. So this data is just between class a and triple a. So those four levels combined, I took out the major league side and it's just a data dump of what those organizations throw often usage velo of each pitch, you know, some subtle release characteristics and stuff to see if they value anything specifically on, you know, release height or extension or anything like that. They're like looking for a prototypical pitcher. And the main thing I'm looking for is just outliers, right? I'm looking for sorting things, you know, max men, who's jumps out is throwing a lot of something or who doesn't throw a lot of something. 
And there was some pretty interesting stuff in there. Some I, I, In the breakdown, I kind of went through a couple of the orgs that stood out. The Mariners are probably the oddest one. They throw a crazy amount of sliders they have for the you know, last two years. They're up around almost 40%. The league average in the minor leagues like that is somewhere in the mid-20s. They throw basically no forcing fastballs, a ton of sinkers. They have release heights that are lower than pretty much any other organization in baseball by a decent margin, um, almost like four to five inches below the average, which is striking, especially when you're looking at such a large sample like this to see something that stands out that much. So the Mariners were kind of the team that I was just blown away by. I have the, how unique they are. And the funnier thing is at the major league level, it doesn't even seem like they really mimic <laughs> what they're doing at the minor league level that much, right? Like they throw a lot of forcing. I think the third baseball and forcing fastball usage at the major league level or just fastball usage generally at the major league level. Um, they get ahead and counts their first pitch um, strike percentage, I think, in the league is like top two. Like it, it's kind of funny to me that they take such a deviated approach in the minors. But again, like there's a lot of nuance to the, this breakdown. You know, I, I, I didn't really separate out how they developed starters from relievers. I grouped everything together. So that's obviously something internally that I imagine most orgs would argue is, is different. And maybe the Mariners really do do that well, but they jumped out for sure. Yeah. And there are also considerations of like, well, is this what they value in pitching? Do they think that this pitcher type is undervalued in the draft? So they just end up with a bunch of them and lean in. Uh, there's a lot more we can do with this kind of uh, analysis, but it's a great first pass. It was super interesting. Uh, the Mariners hate fastballs. We know that now. Uh, did I, I know they, they, when you, you did some of the lists and I know in your video breakdown, they didn't really come up and, and this to me suggests, well, they're probably somewhere in the like six to 25 range in every, in every stat. They're not all that interesting as outliers, but uh, were you able to glean anything about what the blue Jays value or, or what they're trying to do in their minor league system through, through this data? Yeah. When you brought this up, I, I went back through and did a little dig this morning and I missed one thing with them that I thought was pretty interesting. So I, overall they're pretty average in most of what they do. And it's, it's good. Like being average is fine. Like some of the teams around the average are still really good at developing pitching. So it's not like that's an indictment on them at all. But the thing that jumped out to me, they have top five changeup usage in the minors. But the thing that I think is more impressive is the fact that they have around like an average release height. Um, and they have the third most drop on their changeup or excuse me, second most drop on their changeup. So I, I, I specify release height there because generally as you're lowering your slot, you're going to have less you know, more drops, excuse me, on a changeup. You think about a guy with a lower release being able to kind of create more sync on the ball as opposed to someone straight over the top being able to create that drop on a changeup. So they're number two in baseball in terms of the amount of drop they're getting on their changeups in this minor league sort. Um, they throw them a lot. They throw them relatively hard, and they throw them from a high release side. That's a really nice combination. And I think this is something we talked about in the past is the fact that they have kind of a tendency to, you know, go after guys like Trevor Richards and such mm-hmm. and, and push in this direction of, you know, good changeup. So that seemed to be reflected in the minor league data. I didn't see anything else for them specifically, but that is something that I now look at and which I kind of brought in. So maybe I do like a version two update because I feel like I've had some people ask me about different orgs and most of them are kind of average, but this was the first one that I was like, Oh, I, I missed this with the changeup. So uh, props to Toronto for being able to do that. I think that is definitely kind of a standout factor that characterizes their minor league development. Yeah, and I wonder, you know, obviously this is something I, I can kick around the next time we have someone from the org on a, as a guest on the pitching side. And, you know, is that, sure. again, are you trying to identify change-up guys like you have at the major league level? Some I, I know they're, uh, they're a, a team that's tried to ID and teach the splitter a little bit as well, although that's probably, you know, too low usage a, a pitch to really stand out. Um, but also I wonder if there's an element of, well, the change-up, a lot of the change-up artists we see took a really long time to polish off that change-up, uh, and maybe it's just something you 
you want guys trying to learn from uh, from a lower level here. Um, so, Lance, I guess uh, b- before we turn to guys at the major league level, having done all of this and, and, you know, looking at the orgs who have been the best over the years at finding and identifying and developing young pitching talent, the Blue Jays have a very good staff. They have a very good bullpen. They're number two in ERA overall this year, but very little of that is homegrown. Uh, the teams who are able to do the homegrown part of it, has anything stood out to you as like, you know, something consistent across those orgs, or is it more of a, just be really good at what you do, whatever that is. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the main thing. You know, I I think one of the things in doing this and then also getting a lot of people from orgs following up with me and talking and having good conversations about the information is like, I think what I'll hear pretty often, you'll hear this in interviews, I imagine as well, just because I think on the public side, you know, they tend to have the general idea that, you know, we, as an organization, really just cater to the player. You know, you're going to hear that pretty much from any org, regardless of how unique they are relative to this data that I have. And I think that's true to some extent for a couple orgs, but I do think for the most part, every organization is going to say that. And then the majority of them are actually not that successful at doing so. So, and I mean that because it pops in the data that team like the Yankees, you know, throws a lot of cutters and it's like, I don't necessarily know whether all the guys they're giving cutters to should actually have cutters, but they're doing it and it's successful. So I think a lot of orgs take more of what you'd call almost like a venture capital strategy where it's like, okay, we have this particular kind of pitcher. We really value sliders internally in our model. Let's give everyone here a sweeper. And then the public will ask, cause it's like, they're talking to players and they're like, man, I've noticed that like you have like seven guys who added the sweeper this off season. And, and the org will be like, well, yeah, I know we, we thought that, you know, we had an underlying characteristic in all these guys. When in reality, I don't think that's true. I think it's just every – the sweeper is a really easy pitch to teach. You know, if you could cue a curveball out of hand, you could probably create some break with a sweeper. Let's give it to almost as many guys as we can conceivably think about. And then let's see which of those guys it catches with and develops with and see if we get an outsized return with any of them that makes up – you know, that makes that entire sweeper revolution in the organization a positive return initiative, so to speak. I think a lot of teams think like that. Some of the smarter teams think like that. But in terms of an individual characteristic that I'd say jumps out among the teams that are able to acquire and do the homegrown angle, you know, it's there isn't one individual thing. I think it get back, gets back to your second point there, which is just you have to do something well. The Dodgers love velocity. They throw everything hard. You know, the Rays and, and Gu- I mean, the Guardians are funny. Like, they develop below really well, but they actually have the second lowest 14 fastball velocity in the minor leagues. So they develop it, but they develop it from like a place of like nothing, which is maybe their own strategy. They do that really well. You know, the Mariners, I think, work backwards from sliders most of the time in the minor leagues. Like if you have a good slider, you know, you're going to get valued by that organization and you're going to have the opportunity to throw it probably 35 to 40% of the time in the minors. And we'll kind of go from there. So it's, it's more, I think, of creating like, even though the organization might be saying we like doing this specific thing, you know, there's probably an angle in there that they like doing, they have more success doing this individual characteristic in their org. And that defines them as an organization, despite what they might say publicly. So for example, if you're the Toronto Blue Jays, you don't necessarily have everyone try to increase their spin rate. But if you acquire Genesis Cabrera and you see something uh-huh. in his breaking ball and you think you can get, you can find a way to add more spin to that, you'll have him do it and he'll go 16 and a third innings without allowing an earned run since he joined your team. Now, I think the biggest thing with Genesis Cabrera since joining the Blue Jays is probably that he has only walked two batters and both of those were intentional walks. Uh, but what are you seeing in Cabrera's, uh, you know, a really strong first 18 games here with the Blue Jays? Obviously, no earned runs pops out, uh, but the controls improved and the spin rates kind of jumped through the roof. 
Yeah, yeah. I, it's it's fun. I love when you throw me names that I haven't really looked at too much. And I did a quick look at him this morning. Fastball usage on him is pretty down. I was actually, or excuse me, reverse. It's actually up. So with the Cardinals, he was throwing like 36% slider. And, you know, the four-seam of the sink, where like the sinker was like 10%, the four-seam was like around like 33. He comes to you guys, and the four-seam stays at 35, but the slider comes way down to like b- below 25%. So they cut a lot of slider usage. I think that might be the reason why he's not walking as many guys. But the more interesting thing to me is that if you look at like some of the underlying stuff and how that slider was working, you'd expect that pitch to be thrown a lot. You know, it was generating like well above average whiff with the Cardinals. He was thrown in a ton. It's 90 miles per hour. It's a hard pitch. He's able to land in his zone at an average rate. It got hit a little bit. But, you know, I, I, if I was the team inquir- acquiring a guy like Genesis Square, I'd look at him and I'd go, okay, yeah, the slider's really good. We're acquiring him for the slider. But the Blue Jays saw something here in the four seam, and especially the sinker basically almost doubling that usage, that they really liked. And they upped the usage on both those pitches. It's actually made the contact quality on the slider better for him, even though the usage has come down. You know, he's now like almost a 60% four seam sink guy overall. He's getting chase on those pitches. The contact quality looks good. So I, I was actually kind of a little surprised to see the fastball uptick, generally because you see teams like the Rays and other teams, and I've done a bunch of, like, TikToks on these where <laughs> the Rays will acquire a guy, and it's just like, yeah, let's lop 10% off, 10 percentage points off that fastball usage, bring your splitter up, and there you go. Now you're a league average reliever. This is <laughs> Robert Stevenson and so many other guys. So this is almost the inverse, and it's worked really well for them. You know, the K-Ray isn't crazy strong, but I, I don't necessarily know if that matters right now for him because of how good of the contact quality he's able to generate on the four seam and the sinker are. So, yeah, that's the main takeaway for me is that sinker usage came way up and they cut the slider usage and seems like he's in zone more. That's helping the walk rate. And that's been an equ- impressive kind of tweak that I didn't really see coming. I'd be curious on, on what they saw internally. I haven't put too much thought into why they take down slider usage there, but uh, it seemed to work. Yeah, it's working uh, so far and maybe some of the do with the pockets of lineups he's facing and things like that as well. Uh, but it's, uh, hey, it's as good a start as you could possibly ask for uh, from a guy yeah. being added to your bullpen off the DFA pile. Uh, hey, there are going to be some guys added to some pitching staffs over the next couple of days off of the waiver pile. There are a bunch of guys who will land on new teams today so that they are playoff eligible. We've talked about it a, a lot on this show. You know, the the Blue Jays, starting rotation and bullpen are in such a way that they don't seem like an obvious fit for a number of these guys on the position player side. Certainly we're starting to hear some rumblings now. Hey, a couple of East teams are in on Harrison Bader, etc. But on the pitching side, it seems pretty likely that some of the teams, the blue Jays are competing with for a wild card spot or could be facing in the playoffs. If they make it could look to add on the pitching side here. If certain names get to them in the waiver process, um, Lance Lucas Giolito is probably the highlight name. He cost. He was one of the better starting pitchers moved at the trade deadline. He's now available for just one sixth of his salary. If you claim him and have the waiver priority, the angels didn't tweak much with Giolito and Giolito obviously has, you know, a pretty long track record of success with the exception of last year. Um, what would a team be getting in Giolito? And do you like him as an ad for pretty much anyone who who's in a playoff push here? Yeah, considering the cost here, I think any team it was probably right to acquire him. I don't think he gets past the team like the Reds. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you guys, it ends up tough. Like you guys have seven three wins, and you're, you're two and a half back of the third wild card. Yeah. Whereas in the NL, you look and it's like Miami's, you know, three back of these wild card sixty six wins. So I think a lot of these teams are going to be claiming these guys. 
would be shocked if any of the starters make it past San Francisco or Cincinnati, even Arizona, you know. So I, I think that's where Giolito's ending up is in one of those places. Um, they're getting a guy who struggled this year, really. Like, I, there's no other way to put it. Um, the White Sox didn't really tweak too much. I've seen some change in progression with him on the batted ball side and also just general, you know, ability to generate swing misses with it is still really strong. The four seems backed up a little bit. Um, I did find it interesting, yeah, the, the Angels didn't tweak a ton in terms of mixer approach, which I found a little surprising. But the one thing they were able to do is kind of get his release height back up. And I thought I saw in looking at some of driveline stuff plus data and even what's on publicly available on fan graphs is the fastball quality actually picked up in his last couple starts with the Angels. And, I, you know, a little more carry. The Velo was back a little bit up to like 90. He was averaging 94, above 94. His season average is only 93. So those subtle increases of like when we get the release side up, maybe he's sequencing better, the Velo comes up, that can help a pitch go from being, you know, generating below average whiff and the contact quality not being great to like more of an average pitch. So you're telling me Julio now is kind of more an average fastball is below average. And then I'd love to see a team kind of give him more of a true cutter to help out against left-handed hitters. You know, the changeup's always been a really good pitch, and it is generating swing miss, but it's not as dominant as it's been in the past. It's a really high zone pitch for him. If you've ever seen a pitch, he's a guy who works kind of top-down with a changeup, similar to Michael Waka, where it's like that changeup's in the zone at a well-above-average rate, but it's because he's kind of tunneling it off the upper third fastball. It's straight change. It's not like your Luis Castillo fading change, generally because he throws them over the top. So... I like Giolito's an ad. Like, and again, it's for the minimum. Like, this is such a low risk situation and with high reward. And like, I, even if you just take him and don't do anything with him, I'm fine with that. But I imagine, you know, the Reds have a pretty smart, I think, pitching department. And some of the guys I've talked to there, Derek Johnson, obviously, has a ton of pedigree. San Francisco as well. They've done a pretty good job. Uh, Miami is very specific on what they do. I know they like change up, so I'd be curious to see whether they go after a guy like Giolito. But they have also a particular kind of change up. They're not really into this straight change that he throws at the velo separator. They're more into that power changeup, you know. So, I don't know. Maybe they give him 10 miles per hour to his changeup and they like him. But, <laughs> but yeah, I'd be surprised if he gets by any of these NL teams. I, I'd love to see if they add him a, give him a true cutter to help out against lefties. Otherwise, you know, I, I, I'm kind of encouraged by the fact that I thought the fastball got a little better in those last couple starts with the Angels. Uh, Reynaldo Lopez and Matt Moore were also guys the Angels freed up. Reynaldo Lopez, the numbers had trended in the right direction since the Angels had picked him up. Matt Moore, a good season overall, but kind of has you know slowed down as the season's gone along. But given that they are major league caliber bullpen arms available for free at the end of August, are those plug and play for just about any team in the mix here? Yeah, Stuff Plus absolutely loves Ronaldo Lopez. Stuff Plus is this combination of Velo, uh, the shape characteristics of the pitch, and the release it's coming from. Try to distill it all down to the one number, and let's look historically off how similar pitches have fared and see if we could predict how a pitch will do. He's like plus, 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 honestly, on his fastball and slider. The batted ball results haven't been great, so uh, you could assume maybe there's some location things going on there. You know, the swing and miss isn't really strong on both of those, but I still think he's like a you know, he's throwing fastball slider like 95-plus percent of the time, and I don't think you pull him off that. I, I, I think there's maybe a team that could figure out why those, the batted ball quality on both those isn't great. could be a command thing, which might be harder to change. I think command is just kind of more of an ambiguous topic that comes and goes, uh, or a guy has it or doesn't have it. I don't think it's something that maybe they could correct in season for him. But, I, yeah, Ronaldo Lopez is a, is a clear, like, most of the teams in playoff contention probably have their you know, back end solidified. I think that I'd be curious to see whether the Marlins go after a guy like Ronaldo Lopez because they've had some struggles with David Robertson. You know, A.J. Puck was pretty dominant to start the year and it's kind of faded. Yeah, I, so I could see them maybe picking up a guy like Ronaldo. I think they're going to Tanner Scott for saves now. 
So I, I could see them maybe picking up Ronaldo and slotting him back into the back end and seeing if that works, given what's happened with David Robertson, especially for the league minimum. Yeah, Matt Moore's another one, too. That's, that's more lefty situational. So I'd be, I'm not entirely sure off the top of my head the lefty situations on some of the teams that are around there. I'm sure the Cubs will love them. You know, I obviously work for the Cubs Network, so I'm kind of trying to speculate <laughs> who might get to them. I think that a lot of these guys might be gone by the time they get to the Cubs, so we'll see um, whether they actually end up in that situation. Moore is a fastball changeup guy. Getting actually a ton of uh, chase on the fastball, um, but he's more like lefty that, you know, I think can mitigate both lefties and righties given that changeup. So he's another guy that's valuable. In terms of priority, it's obviously going to be based on the fit of the team, but I do think, you know, you know, it's probably Giolito, then it's probably Ronaldo, and then it's probably Matt Moore. But I can see a team maybe jumping up on Matt Moore if they want a lefty and they think the back end solidified. So very interesting names here, all for the league minimum. I don't know if any of them are impact, but – you know, some of these teams that are just on the bubble, it might actually help them a lot. Some of these teams are employing pitchers who they'd probably rather have at AAA right now. Uh, and hey, if it's just a little bit of money, yeah. one sixth of the salary the rest of the way. Uh, I think if you're a Blue Jays fan, the most important takeaway from what you just said there is not anything specific about the pitchers, but the fact that when you look at the standings and who has waiver priority, hey, these guys probably, I mean, first of all, aren't getting to Toronto and maybe if you weren't interested in a pitcher anyway, they're not getting to Texas who you're chasing down, which is an important yeah. consideration. Uh, Lance Brzezowski, I, I hope you get the pitchers that you would like for the Cubs to make this last month interesting for you. Uh, thanks for taking the time out, man. Absolutely. Good luck to you guys too. Lance Brzezowski, player development analyst at the Marquee Network. You can also check out his sub stack at Lance Braz. Uh, that's the same as his Twitter handle and his YouTube channel as well. I uh, can't recommend enough that breakdown of what different minor league organizations are doing from a pitch mix and, and release point and things like that standpoint. Some really fun data that Lance does an awesome job uh, contextualizing. His sub stack is really great as well. If you are a fan of just baseball in general and some of the pitch mechanic stuff uh, usually highlights three to four players every day around the league that he saw, Hey, this with the, you know, how a pitch is moving or this with their release and their mechanics. Uh, it's a lot of fun. We don't have a Blue Jays game to tee up tonight. Not only are the Jays not in action, but nobody relevant to them in the standings is in action. The only American League game is Yankees-Tigers this afternoon, and then there's some NL stuff going on. The big item today will, of course, be we'll find out who all these guys on waivers have been claimed by, where they're ending up. That'll probably be uh, a little later in the afternoon, but we will, of course, break that down for you tomorrow. Uh, who the Jays ended up with, if anyone, who the teams they're competing with ended up with, if anyone, and if the Jays don't pluck anyone off that waiver pile, well, what does that mean for who's getting called up tomorrow? Because as a reminder, Major League rosters expand by two tomorrow. The Jays can add an additional pitcher who we anticipate being Chad Green, an additional position player who we anticipate being one of Nathan Lucas or Spencer Horwitz, unless it's both and Mason McCoy is going back down, or unless it's neither because they've claimed someone off the waiver pile uh, tomorrow. In addition to breaking all that down, we will, of course, set up that Colorado Rockies series for you Friday, Saturday, Sunday at Coors Field. Uh, that is the ballpark where can't predict ball happens uh, an awful lot. So lock in for that. Uh, but the Blue Jays have a real opportunity here. Nine consecutive games against last place teams. Those teams have 
gone four and sixteen, four and sixteen, and seven and thirteen over their last twenty games, respectively, and they have a collective three ten winning percentage in games that aren't against each other. So, uh, as Joe Siddle's fond of saying, strength of schedule only matters if you're playing good baseball at the time. The Blue Jays need to make sure yesterday's game, seven nothing victory, take the series against Washington, can roll over into more good baseball and not the type of baseball we saw against Cleveland or in the middle game of that Washington series. There will be reinforcements tomorrow. We'll break all that down. Uh, Jays sit right now and we'll sit again tomorrow with a 43.5% chance of making the postseason based on the latest fan graph odds. Uh, that is not on the north side of 50-50 where you'd like it to be. Uh, thanks to Lance Brzezowski for coming on, to Chris Black as well, to Dan Schulman. And again, that Canada game against Brazil is tomorrow morning, 9.30 a.m. on Sportsnet. So you can check that out then. We'll remind you tomorrow because I'll be watching in here as we do uh, Jay's Talk Plus. Thanks to Nick, Lance, and Jennifer behind the glass as well. Schulman and Rubinoff are next. Blair and Barker, 5 to 7. Talk to you tomorrow.